For lots of Vermonters, Peter Welch delivered the first news about the storming of the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday. Capitol Police just announced that there was a breach. Uh, Somebody or some people got into the building uh, past security. So they've locked the chamber in the House and they've locked the chamber in the Senate. Everything seems safe, uh, but they're taking no chances. The congressman was inside the House chamber, preparing to certify the 2020 election results that would officially make Joe Biden the next president. Welch's first video went up on Twitter at 2.25 p.m. By 2.39, he said Capitol Police were telling the members to put on gas masks. Uh, We were just told that there has been tear gas in the rotunda, and we're being instructed uh, to each of us get a gas mask that are under our seats. Welch evacuated, but the chaos continued. Updates from Capitol Police came through in the background when Welch held a conference call around 4 p.m. We're getting a report now. Welch said he and his colleagues were eager to get back in and finish certifying the election results. Uh, we're all waiting in the hopes that we can go back and finish our work. Uh, but apparently... Uh, the criminals who were in the building have not finished there. By this time, a flood of images and news reports from Washington had begun to reveal the extent of what happened. A mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol, shattering windows, climbing walls, breaking into offices. Four people died in the violence, including one woman who was reportedly shot by Capitol Police. President Trump had taken the stage at a rally hours before, telling supporters that he would be marching on the Capitol with them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Vermont officials were unanimous in holding Trump responsible for the violence. On Wednesday, Governor Phil Scott became the first Republican governor or senator to call for the president to be removed from office. And on Thursday, he doubled down on condemning the rioters. Seeing our capital, a symbol of democracy around the world, stormed by an angry mob was heartbreaking. And let me be clear, these actions were not patriotic, and these people are not patriots. The scene was so bizarre and so unprecedented that it's been difficult to grapple with the implications. But one expert I talked to on Thursday said it was easy to see this coming. Even before he became president, a lot of what we see playing out are things that people had talked about in 2015 and even before that, right? This is Kami Fuentes-George. He's an associate professor of political science at Middlebury. Kami said it was obvious to him and to lots of other observers that Trump supporters would be empowered in this way. The, the way that Trump and, you know, people in the Republican Party have appealed to white nationalism historically is they don't come out and say, hey, white nationalists, you know, we really like your ideology, we, we support your desire for white ethnostate. There's a lot of kind of coded language that is obvious to anyone who understands anything about the racial history of the United States. And yet, at step after step, people who really should have known better, including people who ostensibly study political science, you know, have, have continually framed it as the criticisms are off base or are unfair or are, you know, have been exaggerated. It has been very frustrating and anger-inducing this entire time. Kami said the police response on Wednesday made the racial distinctions clear. 
police were relatively gentle on the mostly white Trump supporters compared to how they've treated racial justice activists. You know, this past year, right, we have seen protests all across the United States asking the police system and the law enforcement system to not extrajudicially murder or brutalize black and brown people, right? And, um, you know, at many of these vigils and protests, no matter how peaceful they've been, there has been a vicious crackdown by the forces of law and order, right? We had the tear gassing of the um, violent vigil for Elijah McClain. There was a tear gassing of protesters on the Capitol so Trump could hold up a Bible in front of a church. There was the um, protester in, I think it was Buffalo, New York, the elderly man who was pushed down on the ground so that his head was fractured. And, you know, the constant scenes of police officers beating, running over, tear gassing, firing rubber bullets at Black Lives Matter protesters. And then you have this crowd, you know, the breaking into the Capitol steps, taking selfies of themselves inside the Capitol, vandalizing offices, smashing windows. And the response of law enforcement has been, in comparison, a joke. Now, I'm not saying that I want law enforcement to go uh, brutalize the Proud Boys in the way that they've brutalized BLM activists. What I'm saying is that law enforcement should respond to BLM activists with the same restraint and care and compassion that they've responded to violent white supremacists trying to overthrow the, elect the election uh, for Trump. I'm kind of wondering how shocked we should be at these images that we saw yesterday. I've seen this range of reactions where there are some people saying, you know, this is the end of our democracy and other people kind of interpreting this as sort of like an internet prank come to life. Right. And I just wonder, you know, as somebody who studies political science, studies these forces, how should we be interpreting these images? You know, what should we do uh, with this information? My take on it is I'm actually kind of surprised that some people, you know, say that they're, that they're shocked, right? Because if you understand American history and you look at past examples of angry white backlash against racial or progressive politics, this is very much in line with things that we've seen in the 1990s, right? With the backlash against um, Clinton and, you know, the rise of the militant group, right? The Michigan militia, um, Timothy McVeigh, uh, we saw this again under Obama, right? A massive increase in the number of white supremacist organizations under Obama. And, you know, we certainly saw this in Reconstruction. So a lot of what we're seeing right now is a continuation of a strain of white supremacy that has been at the core of America's founding since 1619. And on top of that, what we've seen, you know, like just thinking about the last few years, right? We've seen, you know, obviously the Republican president, say that any election that he loses is fraudulent, inciting police violence against Black protesters, cozying up to Proud Boys, famously telling them to stand by, having them, you know, take those words and put it on their own merchandise, aided and abetted by the Republican Senate, the Republican members in the House of Congress, and state Republican Party. So when you have a system or a part in which the head of the organization is explicitly coasting up to white supremacists and in which the Republican Senate and the Republican members of the House of Congress are either refusing to condemn him or supporting his claims of an undemocratic system. I, I genuinely do not understand why Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham 
and uh, Republican Congress members are acting surprised. I mean, they directly contributed to this. So their shock to me feels very disingenuous. What about just for everyday citizens who are kind of seeing all these images and maybe struggling with understanding the weight of what they're seeing? I I wonder kind of what's your advice for people who are just kind of trying to interpret this flood of news that's coming out about what happened on Wednesday? It It is very alarming because in essence, this is a critical juncture for American democracy, right? And my concern and the concern for a lot of people What I'm very afraid of is for this to be treated in the way that the Bush administration uh, was treated in the transition to the Obama period, right? In which the mistakes and lies and exaggerations that got us into the Iraq war were kind of sucked under the rug and people said, let's just move forward, leave the past behind. We're not going to prosecute or censure or anything, anybody in that administration, right? Because if we move forward from this point um, without some kind of consequence for the Republican uh, politicians in particular, but not exclusively the president, who have spent years undermining the legitimacy of democratic elections, years fomenting angry white militants and terrorists, then what we're going to see is a further empowering of these kinds of behaviors. My main concern is that if we carry on with this policy of indemnity for these white nationalist policies, then all we're going to end up doing is further uh, laying the groundwork for this kind of behavior to continue again in the future. So, okay, well, yesterday was quite a day, wasn't it? Uh, Linda Fowler is a professor of government at Dartmouth College. She said the violence Wednesday took her back to 1970, when she worked at the House of Representatives. And the Capitol had been agitated all week with rumors that a group of domestic terrorists called the Weathermen were coming to Washington to take part in a major demonstration that had been planned to protest the bombing of neutral Cambodia during the Vietnam War. And it was a giant protest But there was a lot of agitation about the weathermen who had been blowing up labs and things and university campuses and a small group, but dangerous. So I left the office that night at about six and I went downstairs to find my car and go home for the weekend. And the whole Rayburn garage, which is a huge space, was filled with paratroopers, jeeps and walkie talkies. And I got into my car, I was so stunned that the people's house had become a battle station that I just sat there crying. I was very young at the time and my sort of first encounter with really bad stuff. (laughs) I tell this story to my students every year when I teach Introduction to American Politics at the end um, at at how disheartening it, it was and how fearful it made me that that the government was about to go to war with its citizens. But the reverse happened yesterday, that it was the citizens going to war with its government. Linda said to her, the attack on the Capitol symbolized how Trump has made an enemy of Congress throughout his presidency. He's refused to follow congressional procedures about oversight. He's refused to have his administration appointees 
appear. He's refusing to submit nominations and has everybody serving as acting. And so this was just the final flipping of the bird, if you will, (laughs) um, to an institution that he clearly despises. And I think it was deliberate on his part. I think it was malicious. I don't think he had any idea that the rioters were actually going to be able to penetrate the Capitol. I think it was to sort of send a message, but the fact that they actually got in was truly extraordinary. Linda said what happens next depends not just on Trump, but on how other Republican politicians are held accountable. I think it's hold the people who enable this president to hold them accountable. There's been a very deliberate feeding of lies. There has been the holding out of impossible prospects that in the end they would get what they wanted. Grown-ups should have been telling Trump supporters a long time ago that their side lost. They did extremely well. They got record turnout for a Republican candidate, um, but it wasn't quite good enough. And um, the unwillingness of Republican leaders to do that, I think, is just as egregious as what the president did on Wednesday morning, but telling them, go march on the Capitol. And certainly I remember from my youth and early adulthood that the late 60s and early 70s, there was a lot of violence. And the violence was on the left, but it was never embraced by Democratic officials. The people advocating violence were always marginalized. They were not elected to Congress. They were not appointed to public office. And now what we have is, oh, we condemn violence, wink, wink. And so I think the top people in the Republican Party deserve a lot of responsibility for this. How do you think we get back to that place where violence is is not being egged on by people in positions of power like this? Well, having studied politicians for many decades now, they basically will go where they think they can find political support. And that's exactly what Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz were doing. And instead, what they're finding is universal condemnation. I think losing the Georgia electorate, um, the two Senate runoffs on Tuesday was sort of a repudiation of you can engage in these kinds of tactics, but in the end, they don't work. But the change of heart will have to come from the members who were appalled by what happened yesterday and who are also very fearful that they, I hope, will, when they're next in recess, you know, do some serious soul searching when they're home with their constituents about how they should behave. I asked Kami Fuentes George what all this means for Vermonters. How should people who are concerned about this news but watching from afar move forward? Yeah, um, I mean, I would say the number one thing is to take it seriously, right? It's very easy in, particularly in Vermont, as you say, to feel insulated from a lot of what's going on in D.C., right? And the danger with that is that when you have political discussions or, you know, political disagreements, it's very easy in Vermont to kind of like write off the behavior of, you know, Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham or, um, you know, Devin Nunes or whoever as just standard politics or standard, you know, politicking or, you know, intellectual diversity or, you know, whatever the ameliorating phrase might be, right? But it's 
very important to recognize that that establishing a narrative in which this kind of behavior is seen as standard political behavior is dangerous, right? Because it establishes a narrative in which these kinds of things can be forgiven and further normalized. So what I would want is at a minimum for people in Vermont to recognize the danger that the Republic is facing right now if this kind of behavior and this um, set of political norms goes unchallenged. Kami said that to him, this could represent a realignment for conservative politics. I think we are essentially at a point in which conservatives, and I want to make the distinction here between conservatives and Republicans, right? We're at a point in which conservatives have to decide what kind of party they want to support or to be a member of, right? Uh, Matt Gates late last year, said the Republican Party is now the Trump Party. And he's right, right? Although I will say that, you know, the uh, Trumpism and the elements of Trumpism, to some extent, were established before Trump, right? So it's not as if he was the only one to appeal to white nationalist and white resentment, okay? Um, and so if the Republic, if the conservatives are happy with that being the credo, then, you know, they should recognize that and and we should recognize that as well however if conservatives and you know there there are some like um Ana Navarro Cadenas and um Bill Crystal so if there are conservatives who are genuinely concerned about the intensification of the continued white resentment at the heart of the Republican party if there are conservatives who are concerned about that then they should do something, either excommunicate people like Trump and Nunes and Gates and McConnell and so on, or, you know, accept the condemnation that people have made about the Republican Party, including other conservatives who've left, like Ben Sass. And we've been thinking about this quite a bit because we have a Republican governor here in Vermont, but mm-hmm. one who's been pretty vocal about his dislike for Trump. And on Wednesday, put out one of the more forceful statements we've seen from a Republican calling for Trump's removal from office. How does Phil Scott play into what's happening here? Yeah, Phil Scott is a you know very interesting character, right? And so, you know, he's, again, we certainly don't agree on everything, right? Um, for the most part, I think he's been a reasonable person, even if he's been someone who, you know, is not ideologically entirely sympathetic with me, right? That's fine. Um, but Phil Scott is at the same critical juncture as the rest of Republicans, right? Hmm. Um, and to me, it looks like he's been trying to kind of have it both ways, right? On one hand, you know, criticizing the Republican party that's been most indoctrinated by Trumpism, but also remaining a Republican. I'm not entirely sure how he's going to, or if he's going to be able to continue walking this tightrope. Um, I think calling for the excommunication of Trump is probably a good step. But, you know, again, Trumpism is not going to end with Trump, right? Like these kinds of this kind of rhetoric is not only Trump. And so once he's gone, what then, right? We still have Josh Hawley. We still have Tom Cotton, right? We still have all these other people. We still have Ted Cruz, okay? We still have Marco Rubio. We still have all these people carrying on the mantle in the Republican Party. So is he then going to be kind of the face to soften what the Republican Party really has become? I don't think he's going to be able to avoid being lumped in with uh, where the Republican Party is going for, for much longer. Thanks, Kami, for your time. I appreciate it. Sure thing, Mike. Hey, 
Head to vtdigger.org for more of our reporting on the storming of the U.S. Capitol and the reaction in Vermont. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger newsroom. See you then.